Well, let's open again our Bibles to Mark chapter 9 as, as we pick things up where we have continuing our study here. You know, as a parent of any child knows, there are many things that, that a child must learn as they grow, and so we teach them. Right? We, we're teaching them all sorts of things. We teach them how to use a fork. We teach them how to tie their shoes, how to brush their hair, how to brush their teeth, how to ride a bike, how to speak politely. And pretty much every positive thing that needs to be taught in a child's life has to be taught. Like it's, It has to be communicated in some way. Uh, they can learn a lot of things by watching and then imitating, but there's also direct instruction that has to go on in seeking to train children and to teach them different things as they learn and grow. But there are some things that all children really are just, just naturals at, right? There are some things we don't have to teach them. They just they figure out how to do that all on their own. I never had to teach my child how to tell a lie. Never had to teach them how to be mean to each other. Never had to teach them selfishness. They figured all that out all on their own. We hear things like, oh, no, that's mine. Me first. I want the bigger piece. Well, that's not how I want it. That's, you, know, you should do things my way. Of course, this doesn't only describe the lives of our children. This describes all. We all grew up this way, right? This isn't, this, we all have had these experiences within our own lives. All of us naturally have an inclination to pursue that which we, that which we believe to be most beneficial to our own selves. And this is not just children, is it? This is an inclination of ours that, that stays with us even as we grow, and, and we find different ways to kind of maybe try to make it not so obvious at times and kind of cloak it with different things. But as adults, we can all act the same way. It's common in certain circles, you know, to... I think of some of the, 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 the jokes that have been made at, at, at other people's expense and you know, sometimes we can say, oh, you know, such and such a people, they're, you know, they're acting in such an entitled way. Well, the, the perception is there is that they're, they're being very selfish and they're acting in such a way that they believe the world owes them something. And there's a whole meme genre that has developed out of this online. You know, we talk about the examples of all the, the Karens out there and these are individuals, maybe they make a scene, they, they want to they get what they feel right even uh, though the whole world is watching and they're kind of embarrassed for them for how they're acting in that moment. You know, there's, I want to talk to your manager kind of thing and there's even a haircut for I genuinely feel sorry for all of the wonderful sweet Karens of the world because of the way that that has just kind of become a pejorative against other individuals who have that name. But the root issue of that, there's, there's a recognition of something in that, that there's, a, there's some level of selfishness at play there. There's some level of, of belief in individuals who are acting in a particular way that demonstrates that they believe that the world is kind of about them and they're trying to pursue their own agenda and get what they want, when they want it, how they want it. And it's viewed as a negative thing. But that root issue extends far beyond the world of the so-called Karens. Selfishness and pursuit of our own agendas, what we think is right, it's thoroughly pervasive within our society and even, if we're to be honest, within our very own hearts. 
Just think about how we respond to even the slightest inconvenience. That, that will reveal something within our hearts about, about what we believe and what we think. If someone does something that we don't think is right in traffic, they cut us off or they don't turn their turn signal on or something, we throw our hands up in the air like, what are you doing? And, or whatever else that we do, and there's a reflection there. Of, it's like we think that the whole world is about us, Right? Or when the food takes too long in the drive-thru and we march in there and we give that manager a piece of our mind or whatever else that we might do in reaction to the different inconveniences that happen in the world. Sometimes this is revealed not only in how we respond to an inconvenience, but also in, in almost just our obliviousness to the interests and concerns of others. You know, our society trains us to be hyper-vigilant for ourselves in our own interests, and so we can get tunnel vision and just fail to see the needs and desires and interests of other people around us. I remember watching uh, television years ago, and there was an ad on TV that was all about, you know, you got to look out for numero uno. That was the line that was repeated throughout the commercial. It's like, oh, you got to look out for yourself. Nobody else is looking out for you, so you should buy this product because that means you're looking out for yourself or whatever. But he was just playing at this idea that, yeah, you're the most important person. You deserve this. This is for you. You've got to look out for numero uno. Think of a particular example of a man by the name of Zach Hampel. This is, he's a famous or rather infamous individual in the world of baseball. He's a fan who he tracks where different players hit certain balls and such. And so he tries to strategically position himself in the stadium so he can catch home run baseballs. And to date, this man has caught over 12,000 baseballs, including some very historic milestones in the lives of many individuals. And he's very proud of it. Well, what makes this man so famous or rather infamous is there's one television host once called him the worst man in America because there's videos of this guy catching these baseballs, and it appears as though he is pushing down other people, including children, in an effort to get those baseballs. It sure sounds terrible, right? And you know, Zach Kempel, he tries to defend himself. He's, he explains, he's like, no, he's like, I'm not intentionally shoving anybody. I'm just in the heat of the moment. The ball's coming and we're all just kind of jumping. We're bumping into each other. I'm not trying to hurt anybody. I'm just, I'm just laser focused on that ball. I, I got to get that ball. So from his perspective, he's not trying to be intentionally mean. He's just kind of oblivious to his surroundings. But that's part of the point of how we all can kind of tend to live that way. He's so focused on what he wants and what his agenda is that he's not aware of his surroundings and the interests of those around him. And we can fall prey to just living life that way about what we're trying to accomplish, what we want to do, what we want to be. Got to watch out for numero uno. Was that how followers of Jesus should think. In our text today, we're going to see the disciples arguing about which of them is the greatest. Who has the position of preeminence? Of all the disciples, who is numero uno? Jesus is going to teach them that if we are to be His disciples, if, if we are to follow Him, there is a different way for us. There's a different pathway for those who would follow Jesus Christ. It is not through selfishness. It is not through a pursuit of getting our own way. The way of discipleship is the way of self-denial, as we have seen before back from chapter 8. 
The way of discipleship is the way of servanthood, as we will see from this text today. Whoever wishes to be the greatest must become the servant of all. True greatness is not found in in self-seeking and self-service, but in a self-denying service to others, even those who might be considered the lowest on the totem pole of the social hierarchy. Mark chapter 9, beginning with verse 30. It's where we pick things up. The text says this, They went on from there and, and passed through Galilee, and He did not want anyone to know, for He was teaching His disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him, and when He is killed, after three days He will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask Him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, well, what were you discussing on the way? And they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This passage is the second of three cycles of Jesus teaching his disciples about <coughs> excuse me, about the reality of what must come in Jerusalem, followed by statements or a demonstration that the disciples were really not quite catching on to what Jesus was trying to teach them and communicate to them, then followed by Jesus doing some teaching about the nature of discipleship. We saw the first of those cycles earlier in chapter 8. From Jesus' perspective, if you're going to be His follower, well, then you need to be prepared to live as Jesus would live and even die as Jesus died if it would come to that. And so we saw in the first cycle in chapter 8, that ever-famous cost of discipleship passage, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. But what does it profit a man to gain the world but lose his soul? And what will a man give in exchange for his soul? It's Mark chapter 8. Here at Pillar Fellowship, we do have a core value. We do have that we have identified as life-on-life discipleship. Our aim is to help one another follow Jesus. Part of our purpose statement is to proclaim Christ. Why? So that every individual in our reach might hear, believe, and follow Him. And we have on this banner over here, this passage, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. This is what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus commissioned us to make disciples, to make followers, those who follow Jesus Christ. And so we put that in our foundational documents. We hang these verses on the wall. We hang these banners to remind us of what we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to do. If we claim to be followers of Jesus, then we should actually follow Him. We should actually do the things that He has instructed us to do. And so our text today contains this second cycle. We saw that first cycle 
anyone who can after me, let him deny himself. Well, this cycle, this is really actually the most compact of the three cycles, the most condensed, but it contains some important information that serves as the backdrop for Jesus' teaching on true greatness. So first, we see... Oh, my thing's not working. True greatness is modeled by Jesus. After the scene of casting out the demon from the child, Jesus and His disciples, they're traveling along, and, uh, but this time they're going about privately. All right, the text says that, that they went on from there and they did not any, he, he did not want anyone to know. Right? This, is, this is a private traveling in this moment. And we talked before about the messianic secret that, that Mark kind of has along is, okay, don't tell anyone about this. He doesn't want anybody to know. The text explains why. Why doesn't he want anyone to know? He has a purpose because he's teaching his disciples something important. And it's the nature of what is awaiting him in Jerusalem. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill Him. And when He is killed, after three days, He will rise. A few things that must be noted here. Jesus says that the Son of Man, that's Himself, of course, will be delivered into the hands of men. Of course, the words there, will be delivered, that is in the passive voice. This is an action that is happening to Jesus. He is being delivered by someone else. So, the question that might come from that is, okay, well, who's delivering Him? Who is delivering Jesus into the hands of men? And, and from our context and understanding of what Scripture teaches, it's clear to us that this is what is commonly called a divine passive. This is God working here. This is God who is doing the handing over. The Father is going to deliver the Son into human hands and they will kill Him. But He will not stay dead, but will rise from the dead. We see that this is part of the Father's plan. This is, this is part of the Father's doing. This is not an accident that what is going to unfold and happen to Jesus in Jerusalem, but this is part of the plan of God for the sake of the world. And in a moment, Jesus is going to teach about what it means to be truly great as He's going to interact with the disciples about what they were discussing. But this passage does serve as a backdrop to that teaching because Jesus is not going to teach us that we need to be doing something that He Himself was unwilling to do. He's going to die for the sake of others. He's going to be handed over by the Father for the sake of the world. He's going to be, be killed for the sake of service to others. And so that kind of, there's that famous passage that we're going to come to later on in chapter 10 where Jesus is going to say the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. True greatness is going to be modeled by Jesus Christ whether the disciples have yet to make those connections. In terms of these three cycles of the predictions of Jesus Christ about awaits Him in Jerusalem, content-wise, this is not that much different from what Jesus said back in chapter 8 when He first introduced the concept to them. So the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected, be killed, and after three days rise again. Of course, Peter rebuked Him in that moment for speaking that way, and then Jesus issued a counter-rebuke to him, saying, okay, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. We need to fix that. That's Mark 8, 33. 
Well, in this text, we do not see a rebuke by the disciples to Jesus, but rather a statement of confusion and hesitancy to ask about the teaching. It says in verse 32, but they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Why were they afraid? What would make that response be something that would come from them? Why were they afraid? Part of me wonders if, if they didn't want to get the get-behind-me-Satan treatment. Right? That, that's what happened before when, they, when Peter came and said, Oh, no, Lord, this, this isn't going to happen to you. And, and Jesus has to rebuke him saying, No, get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about what the Lord has. You're only thinking about, you're thinking on a human level here. Perhaps, you know, they're, they're kind of fresh off of... Uh, Fresh off an L, as they say. They, 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 they kind of suffered a loss. They tried to cast out a demon earlier in chapter 9, and it wasn't working, and they didn't know why it didn't work, and Jesus had to come along and cast the demon out. They're like, why couldn't we do this, Lord? It's because of a lack of faith. And so maybe they were feeling a bit sheepish on account of the events that had just unfolded there. Ultimately, the text doesn't tell us, so we're left, you know, we'd just be speculating about why they might, might have been afraid, but... Contextually speaking, the passage that follows may have something to do with it. You know, the language for the, for in, that is within this text for Jesus teaching the disciples in verse 31, it's communicating that not that Jesus just said this at one time and then that was it and he was just done, but it communicates kind of an ongoing continual teaching that as they're traveling about, Jesus is continuing to, to make reference to these things and communicate these things, but then there would be other conversations and things that would go about. This is something that's called an iterative uh, word. It's an iterative usage of the word. It's something that happens in iterations. So what he said, what he was teaching them, it communicates its ongoing or periodic teaching. So he's telling them this information more than once, and Mark is kind of summarizing the content right here. But there were other conversations happening on that road, other conversations beyond what Jesus was teaching, and perhaps the content of those other conversations reveals why they were afraid to ask Jesus about his teaching. Because look at verses 33 and 34. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silence, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. They had argued about who was the greatest. Seems the disciples were still setting their minds on the things of man rather than on the things of God. And I can imagine that as Jesus is trying to teach them about his own suffering and, and the death that he is, that is going to be experienced by him as, as, the, as the Father is going to hand him over into the hands of men and all these horrible things that are going to happen to Jesus Christ. And here are the disciples talking about who's the greatest. Those messages don't really mesh too well together. So as they think about the content of what Jesus is teaching and then what they're arguing about, makes sense that they were a little hesitant to be forthright about what they were talking about on the way because it does not comport with Jesus' message. 
and what is to come. Jesus is teaching them that the Son of Man was going to die, and all they could argue about was which of them was the greatest of the disciples. So we have a, a principle by way of a negative example that true greatness is not self-seeking. And I have to say, you know, before we're tempted to be too hard on the disciples, we, there's a few things that we need to remember. Just, just try to get inside the minds of the disciples for a moment and understand why they're having this discussion in the first place. You know, in chapter 8, there's this incredible confession that has been made. Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the one that we've been waiting for. You're the, you're the long-awaited anointed one. And Jesus affirms Peter in that confession. Yes, yes, I am the Messiah. And then in, in the beginning of chapter 9, Peter, James, and John, they get to experience the, the glory of the transfiguration. They see the glory of the Lord. They get, a, they get a glimpse of kingdom glory. And then they see Moses. They see Elijah. It's just this incredible moment. The voice of God from heaven comes down. This is my son. Listen to him. So they're, they're in this maybe a bit of euphoria there about like, hey, this, the Messiah is here. We got a glimpse of the glory of God here. The kingdom's coming. And we, the Messiah's closest companions, his most ardent supporters, the ones who have been with him, surely we're going to have a privileged place in this kingdom because we are the ones who are following him so closely. So to them, within their minds, Jesus has, yes, He's confirmed that He's the Messiah. That means the kingdom is coming soon. We're His closest companions. We're going to get this privileged position. Well, who gets the most privileged position? Maybe, maybe Peter, James, and John are thinking that they're going to get a better position because, hey, they got to go up on the mountain after all. They got to see the glory of God and the, of Christ in that moment. But they're arguing about these things. Let's also consider, of course, that they exist in a very different cultural setting in which we, than which we experience today. For the first century Jew, so much of life revolved around your social status and position and, and who you knew and, and how you interacted with one another. There's always an effort to try to get into a better social standing within the community there. So everyone sought to increase their social credit score, so to speak, at every opportunity they had through whatever means was available to them. And so for the disciples to be having this conversation, it would not have been out of the norm for the culture of that time about discussing about who had the most privileged position, who was is, who is in a position of, of social influence in the best way. Of course, we think of other stories where Jesus talks about, you know, speaking, rebuking the Pharisees for longing to have the best places in the synagogue and having the best places at feasts and making a public show of themselves. These are things that were happening. Right? This is just the way the, the culture interacted with one another. That was the culture. But that doesn't mean the culture was right. The culture does not establish what is good and right and proper. People did what they could to put themselves into a position to advance their social credit of sorts. And Jesus is going to say, this is not the way. This is not the pathway to true greatness. 
So look again at verse 35. Jesus sat down. He called the twelve. He said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Notice there he says he sat down. This, this, this indicated for a rabbi to, all right, he's pulling up a chair. He's sitting down. All right, this is formal teaching time. Y'all are about to get a lesson. All right, everybody listen up. So he sits down. He gathers them together. And he delivers this statement. If anyone would be first, he must be last. You want to achieve true greatness in your life? Guess what? Seeking to establish your greatness through the pursuit, through the concept of pursuing greatness itself, it's not the way. It's not the pathway to greatness. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Culturally speaking, that's a hard pill to swallow. In some ways, I mean, the statement's kind of paradoxical, though, isn't it? If you want to be first, you've got to be last. Okay, well, how, you know, how does that work? If, yeah, and that's, this is how God has set things up. In God's economy, this is not about, this is not about what, what human social interactions are like. This is not about our, our human cultural economy. No, this is, this is God's economy, the way He looks at things. He doesn't look for those who have thrust themselves into the limelight or those who have tried to maneuver them way, their way to the top of the social hierarchy. No, he looks at those who have humbled themselves to serve others, and that's who God says has true greatness. This is so contrary to the way the world works. The systems of the world and the way everything operates in the world is just so contrary to what Jesus is communicating here. We have, we have idioms and sayings that we say that, that communicate that this is not how the world works. It's a dog-eat-dog world, right? If, if you want something, you just got to go out and you got to get it for yourself because nobody else is going to get it for you. Again, you got to look out for numero uno. Right? I'm number one. If I want something, i got to go grab it. Or else someone else might take it first, take it from you. There's things like, you know, you, you, I'm trying to do something here. You, you, you can't make an omelet without cracking a few eggs, right? So maybe even if some people get hurt or maybe they get lost, they get left behind. So what? I'm going to do what I need to do just to get the job done. Whoever is in the way of this steamroller, too bad they're going to get flattened because I'm just doing what I'm going to do. And this happens in so many different contexts. I think a lot of people see this in, in the corporate world. People trying to climb the ladder of success, you know, trying to do this. And so often there's, there's a pursuit of just whatever your agenda is to, to try to take whatever steps are necessary to get to that next level. Rather than maybe even pursuing what's best for the team, it's what's best for the individual. This exists majorly, of course, in the political realm. This week I watched the, the GOP debate. I don't know if anybody else watched that this week, but... Wow, a lot of big personalities on that stage, right? That, is, that, was, a, that was quite the thing. You see these candidates, and they're, they all got their talking points and their lines, all their zingers, and, and just trying to do what they can to kind of ingratiate themselves to particular voter blocks and, and kind of put each other down in different ways, just all this kind of stuff going on. And we might say, oh, yeah, you know, that's just politics. You know, that's, that's just the way it is. 
But does it have to be? It doesn't have to be the way it is. That, that doesn't justify the behavior. We can't just say, oh, that's just politics and just say it doesn't matter. The sad reality is, is it's not just out there that these kinds of mindsets and this kind of attitude can creep in. It can happen within churches as well. I can recall different church experiences I've been in over the years. I can recall church business meetings that have devolved into shouting matches. I've seen people trying to maneuver and manipulate their way into different positions of authority. I've I've been on the receiving end of someone trying to use flattery and manipulative speech and influence to try to push me towards a certain viewpoint. I've watched the internal struggles of denominations as they deal with their own internal politics and I see this as this jockeying for position and effort to try to be the greatest or, or how, that, of course, they're not going to use that terminology that that's what they want to try to accomplish. No one comes out and says, oh, yes, I'm trying to be the greatest person in this church. And yet, the behavior and the actions and the manipulations and the jockeying for position and the tactics that are used communicate that that's what's at play. The actions betray the attitude that there's an agenda and it's so important that I'll use whatever tactics I deem necessary to see that agenda accomplished. And Jesus says, that is not what I want for you. It is not what I want for my followers. I don't want you to, to be pursuing this, this, this pursuit of yourself and your own greatness in whatever way you think you want in your own pursuit, your own agendas. I don't, I don't want you to do that. If you're going to follow me, if you're going to learn from me, the master, well, it starts with self-denial. I've taught you that before back in chapter 8, Jesus says. The greatest is not a pursuit of greatness, but through service. The greatest will not pursue greatness itself, but service. True greatness pursues service. That word for service is commonly used in the context of waiting and serving tables. We even use this language today. There's the whole service industry that's designed in that way. And Serving waiting tables is all part of that. Taking orders, making sure everybody has what they need to enjoy their meal. But there's a broader concept there that beyond just serving tables, but it it includes that concept that helps us understand the meaning. That the root word for service is is the word from which we get the term deacon. And in many places throughout the New Testament, the word for service is translated as minister or ministry. There's a service, there's a ministry to one another. And of course, those words begin to take on a more technical idea as, as time goes on and as, as the meanings of words kind of take on these different concepts. And so the, the terminology of servant or deacon itself can't have a technical meaning in terms of a church office. But before that, it's just about service to others, ministry to others. Jesus says, you want to be the greatest? You want to be first? You want to have the preeminence? Well, try this. How can I serve you? Only then will you achieve true greatness.
Service is the way to true greatness. Jesus is going to take things one step further. Verses 36 and 37, we see that true greatness serves the lowest. True greatness serves the lowest. And he took a child and put them in the midst of them, and taking them in his arms, he said, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. I believe Jesus is using this as an illustration of the point that he's making about service, that if we want to be the greatest, we want to be last of all and servant to all, and that includes serving what he brings his child into his midst. It includes service to one such child. This would have hit the, the Jews in this culture differently than it probably would strike us today. In that culture, children were often considered to be the lowest on the social hierarchy. They did not have standing. They did not have a voice. They did not have influence. They didn't provide positive value to the society until they grew older and were trained in doing other things. So for Jesus to take this child and put them in their midst and to make an object lesson out of this child would have been shocking to a degree to these disciples. So not only must you be a servant of all, but you must even be willing to serve children. See, at least with the concept of service, if you're serving adults, depending on who you're serving, you may have the opportunity through that service to ingratiate yourself to someone who might be able to reciprocate something back to you. Oh, yes, I want to be the servant. Oh, I want to be the servant of this rabbi. Oh, I want to be the servant of this other synagogue leader. Oh, I want to be a servant of maybe this, this governing official. Of some. Oh, yes, I want to do that because that puts me in a position where I can better my social credit score, so to speak. Because look who I'm associating with. But there's no opportunity for advancement with children in terms of serving children. There's no, they, they have nothing to offer you. There's no quid pro quo available. And that's the point. You want to be a last of all? You want to be a servant of all? Are you willing to serve even children who have nothing to offer you by way of return, that it's, it's truly a selfless thing to serve. Jesus said, whoever receives one such child, and I believe by using that language, one such child, he's using it as a, as a broader example, a broader category, not speaking only about literal children, but about anyone who would fit into this category of individuals who would have nothing to offer you in return, people who would be considered on the lowest rung of the social ladder if you receive them, he says, if you serve them, if you, then you are receiving and serving Christ. And not only Christ, but the Father who sent Christ. Be willing to serve even those that we would be perhaps uncomfortable associating with and serving. Just another example from my experience over the years in a variety of churches, one of the most routinely difficult positions for churches to fill in terms of service is positions in children's ministry on different levels. We don't have a, uh, we don't have a nursery here, uh, partly because, well, where? <laughs> where are you going to put that in the building? Uh, there's, we, I suppose we could make something work if we needed to in the back room, but... Uh, it's a difficult position in many churches to fulfill. The nursery ministry, the children's Sunday school teacher, no one, no one wants to change the diapers. No one wants to be with the kids. I've, 
even heard people make comments like, oh man, I got stuck in the nursery again. Stuck in the nursery. There's a, there's a service there. There's a ministry there. A precious children who are precious in the sight of the Lord. If that's our attitude that we carry when we interact with, with children made in the image of God, that does not speak well towards our heart and how we view service. A true servant is going to be willing to do and serve anyone anywhere there is a need. And it may not be our first choice. It may not be what we prefer, but it's where the need is. I'm going to step in and meet that. It may not even be my gifting. But if there's a need, and if I have the ability to meet that need, I want to do that because I want to serve for the sake of of service. So even if that means changing diapers in the nursery or, or scrubbing toilets or mopping floors or, or doing other things of service in areas of, that I'm just not comfortable in or not familiar with, even if that means serving people who have nothing to offer you and it cannot help you climb any kind of ladder, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Flip with me very quickly over to Philippians chapter 2. I just want to look at this one text very briefly before we conclude our time together this morning. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to pick things up in verses 3 through 8. In many ways, this is a bit of a, of a parallel text in terms of context and content and themes. Paul is writing to the Philippians to not be selfishly motivated. He says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. If anyone would be the greatest, let him be last and servant of all. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on to, to provide us an example that we have in Jesus Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus says that he wants us to be the servants of all as his followers, but he is not asking us to do something that he hasn't already done himself. Jesus, Jesus models this kind of service for us. This, and this is, really, this is part of what makes the gospel so amazing, right? right? Is, what makes the gospel so incredible, you have Jesus Christ, even though we who are dead in our trespasses in our sins, we are alienated from God, we are separated from the Father because of our own sinfulness, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus did not look upon us and say, oh yeah, you know, I, I just hope I can get something from this transaction here. No, He came 
See, individuals who are completely undeserving of the grace of God. And He came to serve us lowly human beings. He emptied Himself, took on the form of a servant, and became obedient even to the point of death. And it is through that service that the Lord has said, every knee will one day bow. And every tongue will one day confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus humbled Himself and then was exalted by the Father. And Jesus says, if anyone would be first, He must be last of all. And we have this promise again in other places in the, in the New Testament If you humble yourself, you will be exalted. But if you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. If you are a believer today, it is only because Jesus was willing to serve the least of these, because guess what? That's you and me. We don't like to think of ourselves in that language. We don't like to think of ourselves in that way, but we are part of the least of these. We are like that child. We have nothing to offer Christ. We have nothing to give. We have nothing that we can bring before Him and say, look, this is a good thing that I've made. And yet Jesus, without any expectation that we could do anything for Him, freely gave Himself for us. The gospel message is that we lowly sinners can be declared righteous before a holy God through faith in what Jesus did on the cross. And that gospel is only made more glorious when we consider how wretched we are. And yet, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we praise Him. We rejoice, we praise Him that Jesus served and saved even me. And if we are to be His followers, if we are to be His disciples, then we too should have a desire to follow His example and be a servant to others as well, even to those who have had no means of repaying us, no means of repaying the favor, even to those who within our flesh we would rather not serve and let somebody else take care of it. If anyone would be first, let him be last of all and servant of all. Father, thank You so much for this text. Thank You for Jesus Christ and His example that He is a servant of all. And Lord Jesus is our example, but He is not merely an example. He is our Savior. It is only through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross that we are even given the ability to have a selfless life. Lord, as, as Your Word says, that even as we pursue, the, I think of another text later on in, in Philippians chapter 2, where we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who works within us both to will and to do for His good pleasure. Lord, we come before You needing Your grace and Your enablement in our lives to live as You have instructed. Lord, I pray that we would never look upon this and feel the, the burden and the weight of of what it means to serve others. Lord, I pray that we would take joy in this, that we would look upon Christ and look upon the service that He offered and rendered unto us, and that we would say, oh Lord, that we could be like 
our Lord. Lord, make us like our master. May we follow as he has directed us to live. Pray, Lord, that you would make me a servant. And that we would honor you as we serve those around us. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.